the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, good afternoon and welcome. Little brief pause there, the pause that refreshes. <laughs> Some people say I should do more of that throughout the program for two hours every night. <laughs> well, good afternoon. Welcome. Good to have you on board for this Thursday edition of Lifeline heading into Labor Day weekend. And uh, hope you're planning on staying close to home. They are already reminding us with the current fire situation um, in the Lake Tahoe region. Don't even think of heading in that direction. Probably better to stay home and, uh, and pray and look after the family. Lots to talk about on the program tonight. We're going to give you an update on the status of Senate Bill 357, which appears to be nothing short of an attempt to try and legalize prostitution across the state. It is a shameful bill. And Dr. Stephanie Powell, who was a 30-year Los Angeles PD vet, will join us and uh, give us more insights on this particular topic. I want to start out tonight, though, talking about money. I know a new survey is out that addresses the question of savings and retirement income, the Insured Retirement Institute says more than half of older Americans have set aside less than $50,000 for the days once they call it a job. This comes as more than 50% of workers believe they'll need more than $55,000 a year to survive once retired. Well, if you're going to see, and I'm making numbers up here, per annum coming in from Social Security. The other $30,000 per year is coming from where exactly? Yeah, good question. If you've only saved $55,000, that's not going to be a very long retirement. About a year and a half, and then you're in the poorhouse. Now, some might say, well, wait a minute, though. At least we have Social Security. Well, we do. But a new report says that Social Security trust funds are expected to run out of money earlier than had been expected. That date was initially by 2032. It's now moved back. And that one year earlier than anticipated means if you retire, you'll be able to survive. If you do it tomorrow, you'll be able to survive just off of Social Security with no changes, no impact, 12 years. That's it. And yet we're seeing Americans living longer. And so your retirement, if you leave work at the age of, say, mid-60s on average, you could enjoy 20, 30 years in retirement. Where is the money coming from? And that's not only an important question for all of us, but particularly so for those working in full-time ministry. Pastors simply just don't focus on this issue, and sadly... Many churches that I believe have a spiritual and moral obligation to look after their pastor once 
he retires, they're not taking this issue quite seriously enough either. If only, if only there were resources available out there and people that had expertise in ministry and retirement planning that could provide retirement planning services, advice, insights, free of charge. Think there's anybody out there like that? <laughs> well, you know there is. If you don't know, I'm going to introduce him to you. He's Augie Bao. Reverend Augie Bao has been with MMBB for many, many years. He is a brain. By that I mean, in addition to his MBA from UC Berkeley, he is a CFP, a Certified Financial Planner. That is not an easy certification to obtain. And um, he has dedicated his life to helping pastors and churches learn how to properly prepare for retirement and offer a lot of very invaluable tools that, quite frankly, are only had through MMBB. Here's Augie to tell us more about it. Augie, always great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks so much, Craig, for having me, and I appreciate the introduction. Um, A lot of people, including pastors, have what I call the ostrich approach. They basically say, I'm pretty sure I don't have enough for retirement, but I really don't want to think about it. I don't want to look about it, look at it, and somehow I trust that something will work out. And I know a lot of people that have faith in God say God would provide. But my attitude is God also provides us brains. God provides us the ability to plan ahead. You know, there are parables about planning ahead. And one of the things that God wants us to do is not to have the officers to approach, but to really seriously consider planning ahead for retirement. And I'm especially talking about pastors. And my organization, MMBB, specializes in helping churches and pastors plan ahead for the pastor's retirement. And of course, the irony, based on the two reports that I shared in my opening remarks, is demonstrative that this is not only an issue uh, across the country, but in specific, perhaps exacerbated for pastors, many of whom maybe don't really have a high-paying job. They didn't get into this because of the money. They got into this because they have a passion for people and a heart for ministry. And so there, I would imagine, Augie, be additional stress on a pastor who, practically speaking, can't necessarily take a part-time job in addition to his full-time responsibilities. And so resources are, are limited. And if there hasn't been the proper focus and attention by both the pastor himself and the church, this can mean a pretty sad outcome when it comes to retirement, can it? Uh, yes, it can. And I've been with MMBB since 1990, so I've served in this ministry for over 31 years. I'm an ordained Baptist pastor. I went to seminary, and I also have an MBA from UC Berkeley, certified financial planner, etc. And I'm actually calling out um, some of the lay leaders of the church. A lot of times, pastors, the finances is not their thing. That was actually what my um, MBA thesis is on. I study church administration. And most pastors are not gifted at finances and administration. But during my three decades with MMBB, I've often worked with treasurers or finance people or elders at a church who have advocated and who have contacted me to set up a quality retirement plan for the pastor of the church. So it's not just the pastor's responsibility, but some of the lay people can take the initiative to investigate. And if MMBB is the best option, I would be glad to work with them. 
And what is beautiful about working with MMBB for pastors and those involved in full-time ministry is that the services are absolutely without any cost. And some people say that, hear that and say, well, wait a minute, there. there's, there's got to be a catch. There's no such thing as free lunch. But there's some unique advantages for pastors and churches in working with MMBB. Take a moment, if you would, Augie, and just help people understand how unique this organization is and why it can, in many respects, really help shall we say, supercharge somebody working toward planning for retirement once they've completed their full-time ministry in the pulpit or with the church? I appreciate the question, Craig. You've talked to me many times over the years. You can actually give my presentation if I, if I ever don't show up, because I think you know as much about some of the highlights as I do. But, but like you mentioned, MMBB um, started since 1911, and we have an endowment. Um, John D. Rockefeller gave us $7 million in the 1920s, and today our endowment is over $200 million. As a result of this generous endowment, our services are free for churches. Let me repeat that. Our services are free for churches because we have this endowment, which covers our administrative costs. And historically, we cover Baptist churches, but now we offer our services to any Christian church because we want other churches to have access to the quality benefits. And the supercharged thing that you mentioned is most people, when they work for companies, when they have 401k, 403b, whatever it is, most people pay taxes when they receive the money from their retirement accounts because these are pre-tax retirement accounts. But for MMBB, pastors receive it in retirement as tax-free housing. Let me repeat it. Pastors in MMBB get the tax break of getting the money even when they're retired as tax-free housing, which is a unique advantage that most other financial institutions cannot offer. So we say pastors got the taxes from their retirement accounts. And that is, I mean, that can be such a significant leg up, as I said, supercharging a pastor's retirement planning. And some folks, I realize, don't start on this as early as they should. Uh, They get kind of... uh, serious about it a little bit late or later than perhaps ideal, but it's really never too late. And when you have advantages for a pastor or those involved in full-time ministry through MMBB that go beyond 110 years in assisting pastors and churches in doing this, that goes beyond the size of the assets under management, the endowment that covers all the expenses so that there's no broker's fees, there's no money management fees, none of that involved here, and then added to it Uh, the uniqueness of this special allowance by the IRS for retirement savings to be paid out as housing allowance and therefore being able to save additional tax dollars, wow. Then the only question that ought to be in your mind is how soon can we get Augie out to our church to spend some time with either the church leadership or the entire congregation in talking about what is available for those on church staff that can really help be a a difference maker to make sure that his pastor eventually retires, that his needs and his family's needs are being fully met. It's an absolute easy way to get more information by simply going online to mmbb.org, or better yet, why not just call Augie Direct? 
He's at 917-209-9911. That's 917-209-9911. And again, the appointment is free, the services are free, the advice is free, the direction is free, and coming from a trusted organization with over 110 years of experience, $2.5 billion, that's B billion dollars in assets under management, and as we've alluded to, the benefits just simply begin there and continue to go on. So it's good stewardship. It's critical in caring for pastors. It's a reality that all of us have to face, meaning doing our part in doing our own retirement planning, and especially true, I think, of showing love back to our pastors that have served us for many, many years to make sure that they have every opportunity to enjoy their eventual retirement. More information again on the web at mmbb.org. That's mmbb.org. Or call Augie Direct. He works through the entire Northern California area. Happy to meet with you. Again, never any cost. And all you need to do is give him a call at 917-209-9911. That's 917-209-9911. And our thanks to Reverend Augie Bow with MMBB for that update. Let's get this an update on traffic right now. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I've made the comment several times on this program over the last many months, and I'll, I'll reiterate my statement again here now, and that is that I think that the recall of Governor Gaffin Newsom is misdirected. Now, <laughs> before you run the car off the road or put your fists through the dashboard of the radio in your car, let me qualify that statement by saying I think it's misdirected because I would add another 120 names to that list. That would be 80 members of the California State Assembly and 40 members of the California State Legislature, or Senate rather, making up the California State Legislature, because some of the bills and proposals that they put forward and have been passed into law and even signed by this governor are so over the top. Witness Senate Bill 357. We've talked about this once before. That kind of wants to act like it's being kind to poor sex workers, but really seems to want to not only codify that or legitimize that as a profession, but do so in the face of an abundance of evidence demonstrating that most of those engaged in this Don't do it because they woke up one day and said, you know, I think this is the career path I'll choose, but rather are largely victims of coercion, manipulation, extortion, and sex trafficking, human trafficking. It's shameful because this bill really promises to do far more harm than good. Let's get some insights now. We're joined by a 30-year veteran with the Los Angeles Police Department, the Director of Law Enforcement Training and Survivor Services at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, Dr. Stephanie Powell. Dr. Powell, thank you so much for taking time to be with us. Am I right in my summation that this bill, if it in fact goes into law, will ultimately cause significantly more harm than the quote-unquote good that it's purporting to do? Yes, sir. Absolutely. You know, in, ending the whole ending the whole policing of of sex related um, crimes is really a de facto way of telling trafficking victims who are disproportionately minority that their lives don't matter. 
Yeah, and you know, far far be it from me to fully understand how this works from a law enforcement standpoint. But but isn't the ability of law enforcement now to be able to intervene when they see someone that appears to be on the street engaging in behavior, quote-unquote, that seems to suggest that they are a sex worker, that oftentimes for women that are caught in an extremely abusive situation, that they are on an increasing basis victims of human trafficking themselves, that oftentimes that one, quote-unquote, interaction with the police may be a sole opportunity for them to be able to communicate something and to seek help. And it seems as if this tool would be taken away from law enforcement, trapping more women in this in this this tragic lifestyle with no means of escape. Yes, sir, absolutely. You know, uh, my last assignment, I was a sergeant in charge of a vice unit uh, in 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 Los Angeles, and, and I'll tell you, um, having the ability to use that loitering law gives you the probable cause to stop. Um, because you have to distinguish if that person is under 18 years old, they automatically are considered a victim of human trafficking. Well, the only way I'm able to tell um, a 15-year-old from a 19-year-old, I've got to be able to stop and ask the question. In talking to current law enforcement officers, they said that a lot of times their rescues began because they were able to make... um, uh, those stops to investigate that that person was a victim of human trafficking. And I will end it with this portion of it, that talking to some DAs, they were saying that over 50% of their cases developed from investigations um, into that loitering activity. Wow. And, you know, to, to kind of unpack this a little bit deeper, uh you know, there, there's a couple of issues at hand here. Number one, the impact on, on the quality of life in a community where this kind of behavior is taking place openly on the streets. And suddenly, if you say to law enforcement, well, you, you can't go in and intervene unless you directly hear of a solicitation taking place. Well, I mean, yeah, they're certainly not going to do that if a cop on the beat is walking down the street. And you're certainly not going to hear that if you're sitting in a squad car watching. So it, it not only denies law enforcement an important tool, but I, I guess the thing that, Dr. Powell, I really don't understand here, and that is this. We have been railing against human trafficking and, and all that's involved with that and exploitation of women for many, many years now. And we're seeing increased sensitivity to just how enormous this problem is. And then to say, instead of offering more tools to help rescue people that get pulled into this lifestyle by whatever means, by whomever, for whatever reason, to reduce the tools available as opposed to increasing them. And again, this is not about let's just go, you know, stick a bunch of people in jail and and claim that we've cleaned up the streets. There's a dire need for this kind of intervention, essentially. And and instead of government doing more to to protect these women or to open a door of opportunity for them to escape, we're closing that door. Why does this not make sense to me? You know, sir, I, I have to, to agree with you. First of all, law um, enforcement cannot arrest for misdemeanor crime that's not committed in their presence. So you're so spot on on that. 
And, and I totally agree, for you, agree with you. I'm African-American. I'm from South Central LA. I became an officer not to, to arrest people needlessly when they have not committed uh, a crime, but to also to, but to help my community. Having said that, with all of this effort that's being placed in a bill like this, who, by the way, not only does it work against officers as it pertains to um, uh, those involved not only in prostitute activity, but finding victims of human trafficking, but remember this law, if it's repealed, if someone is a sex buyer, they, don't, they get immunity. They don't get arrested as well. But having said all of that, I wish instead of all of this effort being placed on that, that you, that you address the root causes of human trafficking and street prostitution in the first place, which are things such as lack of education, dealing with systematic problems, um, such as your school system, the foster system. It goes on and on and on. Help these people find jobs. Because for the most part, I also was the director of a um, nonprofit that, uh, that helped adult victims of human trafficking, I can tell you, 90%, they were asked when they came in, where do you see yourself in five years? None of them said, I want to continue to prostitute. None of them said that. They said, I want to um, become a teacher. I want to um, become a social worker. They wanted to do other things. And there's also studies that back that up as well. So, you know, essentially it seems, at least on the surface, from what you're saying, Dr. Powell, that there, there's a heavy dose in this bill of, of nothing short of, of wanting to pave the way for decriminalization um, of prostitution. And, you know, it, it's, it's sort of masquerading as being compassionate in that regard, but fully failing, as you just pointed out, to recognize why this is taking place in the first place. Why women, mostly although not exclusively, are being drawn into uh, this as a means of survival, and you know it, it runs the gambit from educational opportunities, employment opportunities, um, people that have been pulled in because they have a pre-existing uh, a drug addiction, um, other ways in which there's outright kidnapping taking place, and it takes place both on the streets of metropolitan communities across the United States as well as overseas, and then women that are essentially illegally brought into the United States or given promises of a gateway to uh, American life, American citizenship, things of this sort, and then told once they get here, but you're going to have to pay off what you owe me for having brought you to the United States, and this is how you're going to pay me back. And women feel as if, well, if I say anything, if I go to the authorities, they're going to deport me, uh, or worse. And so we're really at the heart failing to address the under the undercurrent of, of of what this lifestyle is all about. And meanwhile, thinking that well, if we just decriminalize it, we will have sort of you know dulled or or, or blunted the, the 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 sharp pain of this. No, not at all. In fact, if anything, you're exacerbating the problem. I want to dive into that aspect of this as we continue our conversation around the corner with Dr. Stephanie Powell, again, Director of Law Enforcement Training and Survivor Services at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. 
She herself, a 30-year veteran of the Los Angeles Police Department. We're talking about Senator Scott Weiner's bill, Senate Bill 357, a bill that would legalize loitering for prostitution. By the way, this has already made its way through the Senate, so this is not just some pie in the sky they're thinking of proposing this. This this already has traction, and it will get more significant traction any day now once it's voted upon by the full assembly. And if you think for a moment that there are enough level heads in the California state legislature that would look at this and recognize the bill for what it is, let me quickly sort of shake you back into reality that that's not going to happen, that if anything, under this legislature and with this governor, oh, this thing will sail right through. They're going to think they've done a great thing. And in fact, they probably just sealed the fate for tens of thousands, maybe not tens of thousands, but certainly thousands of sex sex workers across the state that need help, that need deliverance, that need a doorway of escape, not some means by which they have been now cemented into a lifestyle that they never really chose in the first place. Let's take a time out. We'll come back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Senate Bill 357 here in California, authored by Scott Weiner of San Francisco. It's one of these bizarre, neo-liberal, sort of bizarre, twisted, feel-good things. These poor folks that are sex workers are being treated as criminals, and they not they ought not to be. So let's um, make it more difficult <coughs> difficult for them to be arrested. The, you, that, you, you think that fixes the problem? You think that addresses what's going on here? Well, this is what happens when, the, when these, these politicians sit in ivory towers and have little discussions over, you know, their, uh, their mocha, cappuccino, frappio, whatever, and, and don't really fully understand the totality of the problem that's at play here. Fortunately, our guest tonight, Dr. Stephanie Powell, does Director of Law Enforcement Training and Survivor Services at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. And I guess the real question here, Stephanie, is, you know, in addition to the ridiculousness of even the premise of this bill, highly, highly misguided in my opinion, um, it really fails to address the underlying issues here which is not just, as you pointed to before the break, of educational opportunities but you know, and employment opportunities. But there's, there's real exploitation taking place here. And, you know, because you get caught up in something that you're doing to survive or that you've been coerced into or kidnapped into, to say, let's decriminalize that so that you don't get abused by the legal system, but allow you to to essentially stay in that place and not offer a means by which you can be rescued or find escape, that seems to me this is this is this is almost almost like the 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 government in a sense abusing that person all over again. Did we lose Stephanie? Well, we're going to figure out what's going on here. Hang on just a minute. That was such an impassioned question, too. <laughs> we lost her. Okay, but he's going to get her back. 
we had this problem on Tuesday too. I think that uh, I had to put another twenty five cents, or feed, they had to feed the uh, feed the uh, the hamster once again. Okay, hamster fed Stephanie. My apologies for that. Uh, is this not at the core? And I don't know if you you heard any of my question, but but at the core, a bill like this doesn't it essentially almost uh, victimize? these women all over again by by not addressing some of the core issues here, like the degree of exploitation that they often face? Yes, sir. You, you are completely right. You know, law enforcement has done a complete paradigm shift just since I retired in 2013 in that they pair with victim advocacy groups that help to provide services. So when law enforcement comes across not only someone who has been um, um, victimized or identified as a human trafficking victim, but someone that wants to get out of out of the life, they have, the officers will immediately call the advocacy groups for help. And and secondly, um, domestic uh, human sex trafficking. We're talking about United States citizens who do not choose to be prostituted, and so therefore, law enforcement needs to have the tools available. And, and, and with this law, it's going to take away one of those tools in order to find them. You know, if politicians saw what I have witnessed on these prostitution tracks, I guarantee you they would change their mind because they would then understand that this is not like the woman, this is not like the movie Pretty Woman for those of us that are old enough to remember it. Boy, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because, yes, while that might be a dated reference, it's a very, um, uh, I, I think, applicable one because there's almost sort of a romanticized thought about some of this, which I think, you know, in all fairness, Dr. Powell, is often articulated by people that are wholly ignorant of such matters. And maybe in a sense that's a good thing. I mean, if people understand the inside workings of of how prostitution generally operates in the United States, you'd wonder, well, you know, what are you doing hanging out in those parts of town? But we we can't allow our ignorance to, to then in a misguided fashion, um, create a scenario that rather than empowering women that are the victims of the exploitation by the Johns, by by the pimps as well, and others involved in this entire process, uh, instead of empowering them to be able to, to escape and get help and, and, and get on their feet and, and you know, join society fully in a fashion that they deserve. Instead, we're essentially crippling the ability to do that. We're saying, well, we're we're not going to send you to jail for the solicitation. Look at how kind we are, but we're going to allow you to continue and 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 sit in that in that disastrous scenario called your life because of the exploitation that's taking place. I mean, wow. I, you know, I mean, this is like somebody finding a homeless person on the street and, you know, slipping them 25 cents and saying, well, here, go get yourself something to eat. Like, are you really? Are you serious? Uh, this is this is, again, a highly, highly misguided and I think is the ultimate demonstration of just how ignorant people are of really what's happening here. Yeah, I, and, and I agree because victims of human trafficking do not self-identify as victims. So they normally are not going to go up to anyone and say, hey, I'm a victim of human trafficking. Can you please help me? And so that's why um, a tool such as this is, is highly needed and should not 
um, be taken away. So that said, I mentioned at the get-go that this has already made it through the California State Senate. It will be before the full assembly almost any day now. How should we that are aware of what's going on here uh, get engaged to stop this travesty from, from actually becoming California law? You know, we got to keep fighting. We have to keep having these conversations because even if this too were to pass, there's a possibility that the next fight will be the decriminalization, full decriminalization of, of prostitution. And so the voices need to be heard because I don't think people are used to hearing this end of it. And I'll give you one last scenario. When COVID came in, I was working with the girls on the street um, in my capacity um, at the nonprofit. And what I saw were girls that were still working on the street. There mm. were those that woke up that morning and said, I'm not working today because it's too dangerous, because I may catch this disease. And then there were those that said, I have to work. And their have to work had to deal with either poverty or they had a pimp that was making them work. They didn't have a choice. And so there's, there's a difference. And so people need to understand that difference. And so for those, some of those that are supporting this, that consider themselves sex workers by choice, they have a choice to work or not. The people that I um, represent and speak for are those that don't have a voice the ones that most people don't hear. So we've got to continue to fight for them. Well, and I might suggest that that number is probably those in terms of kind of go into it, uh, quote-unquote, voluntarily. It's such a minuscule number. So many others are in it because they're caught in a trap. They're caught in a cycle. They've got a, a, a pimp behind them that is threatening their life. They have been pulled into drug abuse, and this is their only means to be able to provide for themselves to keep the habit going. Those, as I suggested, that may even be uh, victims of having been uh, trafficked into the United States that are that are facing the fear of potential deportation or or other circumstances that at least has been represented to them as far worse. And then you imagine somebody, you know, we're, we're all trying to do, at least a lot of us are trying to do the right thing when it comes to the response to COVID and having women become doubly exposed to dangers not only risk of life through other diseases and a potential violent John or pimp, but then uh, having to deal with COVID as well. Um, you, you know, if you think for a moment this is a lifestyle that anybody goes into saying, yes, yeah, someday when I grow up, this is what I want to be, uh, don't be a fool the way we see a number of members of the California State Legislature behave. You need to get on the phone. You need to email your member of the California State Assembly. You can look it up online and just say, who is my assembly member? And put in your zip code. It will tell you who. Give you contact information via both email and telephone. Don't be intimidated. You think, oh, I don't want to call. You know, the assemblyman's going to talk me out of this. No. You will speak with a representative or a receptionist who will simply take down the message. They pay attention to that input. And you've got to let your assembly person know, hey, I want you to vote no on Senate Bill 357. And when you are up for re-election in a year... I will be paying very close attention to how you voted. I want to thank Dr. Stephanie Powell for being with us, Director of Law Enforcement Training and Survivor Services at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation for the time and the insights. Important education, I hope, for all of us. 546, look at traffic. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you've been paying attention, and I hope you have, over the last many weeks, we have begun this important series on on looking at some of the broader issues related to the pro-life movement. And, you know, typically the narrative historically has been that pro-life folks were only concerned about the women's decision to choose life, and once they've done it, we have no more interest, we go about our business. Nobody cares about her or her baby or her family after she makes that decision. That is patently false. Don't believe me? Listen to Jocelyn. Hi, my name is Jocelyn, and I just recently reconnected with Real Options. I'm a mom of two and just found out that I'm expecting my third baby. And so I came to the clinic for some resources, some encouragement, and they went above and beyond with that. They uh, were very uh, patient with me, very respectful of my time. They answered a lot of my questions, um, and I just left feeling like we were all family. Uh, All of the women there were really, really kind to me. So I just wanted to say thank you for your smiles, your kindness, your information, and just overall for your time. Thank you, Real Options. And thank you, Jocelyn, for helping us set the record straight. And to continue to set that record straight, Rosie Rosensky joins us now, patient services manager with Real Options Redwood City Clinic. And Rosie, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, What a refreshing story to hear someone who says, you know, I'm not in a crisis right now, but I I do need some support. I need some questions answered, need a little help here. And thank God that an organization like Real Options was there and able to help. And, And that sense that there is not only some history there, but to refer to the experience as feeling like family. Wow, that's pretty incredible. Isn't it? Yes. We are very, very thankful to be able to come alongside women the way we do. And I loved your introduction there, um, Craig. I just want to be sure that people know that we're an organization that believes all life has value, and we would be in error not to respect that woman that's sitting in that chair across from us wherever she is at with the same kind of love that we have for the pre-born, like in fact, we're fueled by passion to come alongside women in crisis. Um, I, I do believe that patient testimonies like Jocelyn's um, carry a lot of weight. I have the privilege of knowing Jocelyn and have been, I was there for her this time around. We had other staff members that were there for her in the past. And you're very right when you say like she used words like resources and encouragement in that interview. And that really does reflect a heart towards the mother and the child. And um, I just always feel very thankful when we get to hear feedback like that, because that's the goal. And, you know, what's encouraging here, too, and I want people to understand uh, the impact of an organization like Real Options that has clinics throughout the San Francisco Bay Area in helping women not only in crisis pregnancies that are looking for answers. They don't understand what's going on. They don't fully understand the totality of their, their their options available to them. But, you know, oftentimes, a lot of these circumstances, I would imagine, Rosie, are because of, um, well, inappropriate choices. Um, maybe a woman has been raised in, in, a, in a household with absentee parent. Um, they have, as a result, kind of have a, 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 a less than ideal understanding of what healthy relationships look like. Maybe they've not really acquired significant life skills. And so along the way, because they've not had that input, not had that support, they will oftentimes make unhealthy choices that can lead to 
quite frankly, some some very painful sets of circumstances. And I get the impression that Real Options really is about not only helping to educate women, stand with them, provide a woman the support, both moral, spiritual, and literal support needed uh, to 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 address the uh, the surprise, the uh, the unplanned pregnancy, but also to provide the kind of life skills necessary so that mistakes are not repeated in the future. Is that is that an accurate sort of uh, uh, encapsulation of, of a big part of what you do? Absolutely. Yes, you're absolutely correct. We really do care of treatment of the whole person. Excuse me. Research shows that healthy people have healthy relationships. And so we're health, we are trained optimal health coaches to be able to come alongside um, our patients and we can teach them all different kinds of skills, effective communication skills, healthy ways to work through conflict, learning about themselves and learning about others, um, all kinds of things that can help them go out and thrive. We have a care team that comes alongside them emotionally, mentally, and physically. In fact, one of the first things they do when they come into the clinic is just let them know that we have a holistic approach, and often they're surprised by that. They're not used to finding it in a clinical setting, and we give them a safe, non-judgmental space to process and um, our coaches meet with the patients and we focus on emotional practical and often oftentimes even spiritual support because of the holistic approach we have and the other day I had someone tell me that they have never been given that opportunity ever in their entire life and so it's from that platform of creating that safe non-judgmental environment that we're able to speak into their lives and it's a privilege to come alongside them in that way and help them in the bigger picture for sure so very much i'm getting the impression <coughs> pardon me that the the work with a, a a client or a patient when they come in really is so this is kind of the, the bringing the child to term and having the baby is kind of the starting process in, in many respects isn't it then i mean i i certainly get that impression from jocelyn that that was kind of the starting point and that this support this relationship continues well beyond that Absolutely. Very true. We have the privilege of offering medical services, so pregnancy tests and verification, ultrasounds, that time to talk, those free optimal health coaching sessions that we talked about. Um, We offer practical support as well, but um, we offer prenatal care through the second trimester. Um, We always offer emotional support. We're, We're available via telephone. And after the baby, um, we can walk alongside them if they choose a loving adoption plan. Uh, we can offer them practical care, such as car seats. We like to keep in relationship with them. Um, I just had a quick personal story that has to do with the power of practical support. Um, I had my first child when I was 20 years old, and I didn't really have two cents to rub together at the time. And I went into labor. My husband was rushing me into the hospital. We lived in a small town. And he stopped at a gas station to get gas on the way to the hospital. You'd think we would have had gas in the tank, but we were 20, so I guess we weren't that prepared. And um, the gas station owner came running out with a big pack of diapers for us. And she gave us our first pack of diapers. And 20 years later, that's something that, that impacts us. Sometimes those kind of actions can speak louder than words. And I think sometimes it's those kind of actions that give you um, that opening to be able to use words. And, and those moments that that can be demonstrative of not only 
um, compassion and caring and sensitivity, uh, genuine love uh, in a very real way, as you say, can, can sometimes just be the kind of encouragement necessary to help a woman or a couple um, dealing with, with challenging uh, circumstances to, to be able to, to carry on and to get through it all and to, to bring a child that by whatever, whatever means happened in the surprise, that's not important. It's that that child is loved and cared for and the parents were empowered to be able to do that and be the best that they can be. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's clear that that's what's happening at Real Options and clear when you hear from people like Jocelyn that that's one of the big motivators is why she comes back. Even though this pregnancy may not be a, a surprise, it may not be a, an emergency, but it's one that she needs, needs some, some advice and support with. And thank God that Real Options is there to provide that kind of encouragement and support. Of course, you are a big part of Real Options. I mean, you listening. Um, when you support the organization, volunteer at the organization, pray for the organization, you become a part of the answer. And it becomes a real way to demonstrate as a part of our testimony to the world that we care about not only the women and the families and the children, but we care in and through both the, the pregnancy and then the, the early stages of that child's life. If you want to get more information on how you can support this wonderful organization, you can go online to friendsofrealoptions.net. That's friendsofrealoptions.net and get more information. Rosie Rosensky, thank you so much, Patient Services Manager with Real Options in Redwood City. Six o'clock from KFAX, a look now at traffic. This report is sponsored by California Department of Housing and Community Development. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.